Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. Today on the show, I had my good friend Ken Curson. Ken is an American political consultant, award-winning journalist, and author who formerly served as editor-in-chief of Jared Kushner's New York Observer. Ken is like a crazy person because he's so brilliant and his career is unbelievable. He's ranked as the 71st most influential individual in New Jersey, and he received the Journalist of the Year Award in 2014. He's a political person in the world of New York and New Jersey politics, very close to the president. Why I wanted to talk to him today is... We were very early friends before he got involved in Bitcoin, and I sold him his first Bitcoin, and he ended up continuing to be very much a part of the crypto industry, founding Modern Consensus, and is also an early investor and on the board of Ripple Labs. So when I wanted to talk about Ripple with someone in a much more frank way, I said to myself, why don't I talk to one of my friends who will be able to have a conversation with me in a non-angry or hostile way? And I also wanted to hear more about what the administration and what politicians in our country think about crypto, you know, from someone who actually can give me an honest answer because he's there. Ken has a wonderful, wonderful history. We talk about how he wrote the books for Rudy Giuliani and ran his presidential campaign and some other crazy stories. We talked about crypto. We talked about the media. We talked about Ripple. We talked about Bitcoin. Give some love to the sponsors. I'll talk to you guys right in a minute. Before we get started, I'd like to thank our sponsor, BitPay, for making today's episode possible. We'll hear more about them later on in this episode. Untold Stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company, Blockworks Group. A few months ago, I approached Blockworks Group and I said, hey guys, I want to do a show, Untold Stories. Can we make it happen? And these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, the show is powered by them, and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the BlockWorks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcasts in their network that they produce, check them out at BlockWorksGroup.io. That's BlockWorksGroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. Today, I'm on with a really good friend of mine, Ken Kirsten. It's really nice having you on the show. Um, I've recorded like 70 some odd episodes so far. And usually like before I do an episode there, there's a research to be done. There's a, you know, you, you were the editor in chief of the New York Observer. You were um, very, very much a part of the media for a long time. Um, So, you know, there's, you know, you have editorial meetings, you have content meetings. Um, This show gets written, produced. So we're sitting and we're deciding how we're going to do this show. And I'm almost like, I fucking I know Ken. Just throw throw all the research away. We're good. We're gonna wing this whole thing. And so here <laughs> we are today. Um, but I did prepare some some content and but mostly what's mostly interesting and I and I and I think the listeners would like to know, you and I met each other um at very pivotal moments of both of our lives. Um I was a young kid. Um, looking for almost this like um, mentor, someone that I could uh, simply talk to. I was, as you know, I was under house arrest, and I was um, the whole world was 
almost distancing itself from me, but you were willing to even just have lunches and to sit and talk to me. But at the same time, you were starting, you, you're coming off this um, epic career. You were, you were just starting off um, at the New York Observer. And I remember your goal was to, to completely turn that publication around and to make it um, super, super digital friendly. And then I went off to, to, to serve my time in prison. And then after all of our crypto conversations, after all our Bitcoin conversations, I hear that you join the, the board of Ripple. And I was like, come on, Ken, out of all the companies to join, I'm just joking around with you. Well, first of all, I love this podcasting without a net format, Charlie. <laughs> um, you're, you're quick on your feet as that uh, you, you, it felt like you were reading that intro off a teleprompter. So I applaud you. No, I wasn't. Um, you know, it's really true. The, the way we met uh, was at, at just incredible uh, moments of, of stress and fear and agony in both our lives. Now, I won't compare, uh, you know, what, what became really the, the greatest job of my life. Five years as editor of a New York City newspaper is a dream come true for any journalist. But you know, when you when you go to work for uh, Jared Kushner and he's uh, uh, the son-in-law of someone who's being already then discussed uh, as somebody who's going to run for president, um, you face uh, life-changing scrutiny, um, which I really wasn't prepared for. And uh, during the first couple months of that, I met you as you were facing um, unbelievably, and in my opinion, from the very beginning, totally unfair and unwarranted um, scrutiny. And I really did feel like like we had a, an instant uh, connection over that. In addition to the our shared interest in crypto and uh, Jewish stuff, and uh, just um, you know the feelings of liberty around money. So uh, I'm really glad to be able to have this conversation publicly with you that we've been having on and off for years privately. What were your feelings about money? Um, you ran Rudy Rudy Giuliani's presidential campaign. You wrote his book. You're very close to him. You've been in politics for a while and. Um, until we started talking and, 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 you know, you started, uh, internally kind of dissecting the idea of money, you know, in your own head and everything, had you had conversations over the years with yourself? Had you talk about, had you thought about like, Hey, maybe we're kind of doing this wrong or, uh, not doing it in, in the most free or fair, just, dis, you know, distributed way. Had you ever had those conversations? Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm more known for my politics at this point. But my, most of my career in journalism has been spent as a financial journalist. I was uh, Esquire's financial columnist for 17 years. Uh, I wrote the first ever mention of uh, the word Bitcoin in Esquire. Um, I've been, uh, you know, I started a financial publication uh, back in the 90s that, that was uh, sold uh, to a publicly traded company. So I, I have a long history in, as a financial journalist. And uh, it wasn't just, you know, buy this stock, sell that stock. A lot of it was about the incredibly unfair nature of, of money and the way institutions um, had a total monopoly. I, you know, they compete around the edges with each other, but the, the idea that someone can't pay you uh, without the permission of some fi private financial institution that takes a, a cut, and if you're poor, they take a giant cut, always has struck me as uh, unfair and not what, really not what the purpose of money is. And if you, you look back at the, the original issuances by banks of their, their own private currency and then of governments deciding, well, we need to, to issue, uh, you know, what we now call fiat currency, but a way so that, you know, the Bank of Illinois can trade with the Bank of Indiana. Um, 
the the idea that these these institutions would suddenly uh, forbid you from from you know writing a check without giving them some kind of percentage, and that percentage now comes out as you know they they charge you a minimum to to have it, they charge you a per check fee, they charge you these outrageous fees if you overdraft, etc. I I have this long obsession uh, and history of writing about just how um, disgusting uh, the banking system is, especially to poor people. Um, obviously, I never envisioned uh, cryptocurrency way back then, but the second I started hearing about it, um, and by the way, uh, you are the very first Bitcoin I ever bought. The very first Bitcoin I ever bought, folks, uh, ladies and gentlemen, was was personally from Charlie Shrimp. Um, it, but I had, you know, at that point already had a, a lot of XRP and uh, was so thrilled and delighted that that these new forms of currency were, in my opinion, obviously going to replace outdated institutions like SWIFT and uh, like, you know, the Venezuelan National Treasury, et cetera. When Bitcoin first came out and we started ta- started talking about it, you had been reporting, you know, like you said, financially for years. Um, what were some of the um, – because we all had them, you know, thoughts of this this won't work, this can't work. Well, you know, I, I don't have any kind of uh, computer science background. So I was, you know, naturally skeptical about the cryptography. And I'm, I'm still somewhat worried about, you know, quantum computing and, and the reliance on basically every different system has some sort of, you know, prime number factoring, uh, you know, baked into its, its safety. So I am still a little bit worried about that. Um, but, it, you know, when I first started hearing about it, the it just like like anybody i it, i worried that this uh ethereal ephemeral money um wouldn't be safe until i started really thinking more deeply that that you know the, the pieces of paper in my wallet were were every bit as uh ephemeral as as a bitcoin you know and and by this point when nobody really holds stock certificates right you you buy you know a thousand shares of coca-cola it's very rare that you actually ask to be papered in that. It's, it's actually almost impossible. It, at this point, it's a stunt where certain companies like you buy your, your grandkid a, uh, you know, stock in Disney because you want the certificate with, with Mickey Mouse on it. But nobody holds their certificates. It's all held in street name at financial institutions. And really, nobody questions that if, you've, you know, if, if Fidelity says they bought you 1,000 shares of Coca-Cola, you've got 1,000 shares of Coca-Cola. So at all times, we trust institutions to somehow securely store very, very good valuable point. things. How do we know that these institutions aren't double dipping when it comes to like um, our share certificates or um, equity in a company, especially like lower liquidity? Uh, some of these, you know, brokers or whatever, maybe they're double dipping or something. We, you know, you don't know how many times you hear about it. Like you said, we trust the institutions, and I mean. I almost snickered sometimes when you, you had a lot of crypto folk would say like, "We need the institutions into Bitcoin. We need the institutions." When is when are the you you would hear this all, all over the course of like 2015 to 2018 or 2017. You don't really hear about it more, but it's like, why would we want these institutions who we don't trust already to enter into our Bitcoin space, our crypto space, and start servicing us? Why would we want that? But I'm guilty of that myself, I'll admit. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think that, 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 first of all, there's this this history of, you know, you trust your bank to keep your $100 savings safe compared to, you know, your friend. You say, what's this $100 for me? But I, I think there's a law enforcement component here. Um, and, you know, as somebody who has been, again, I'll say it as plainly as I can, in my opinion, 
totally unfairly targeted by by overzealous law enforcement in your case um it's it's got to be painful but at the at the core of it there's some law enforcement mechanism you feel like if you put a thousand dollars in your your local bank you know in valley national bank and you go there and they say well i don't have a thousand of your dollars that there's some sort of accountability that at the end of the the day uh is provided by the courts and the law enforcement system they want to be licensed by the united states if somebody committed fraud and that's where your thousand dollars went they'll be punished at some at some level that sense is in your head Whereas, especially in the the 2015 to 17 era, you know, before that, when Mt. Gox just could just disappear with with your money, um, there wasn't this feeling that if an institution where you thought you had 25 bitcoins, you call up and they say, "No, you you have three, There wasn't this sense that there would be a price for them to pay, and that I think is why institutions have a place in in you know in this world and all worlds. The the, the dream, the Satoshi vision of a totally institution-free uh, mechanism for exchanging value is is a wonderful utopian ideal, but it doesn't map with human psychology, where, where right. theft and fraud and and bad dealing are just you know rampant. You're right. You're right. And I think I would go further to say that in the absence of an institution, you'll have the second best institutions become institutions. Um, it's almost like you said, part of our human psychology to have these. Uh, parties, uh, you know, whether they're centralized or not, or smaller or bigger, um, you think of, of of Bitcoin and crypto. They're definitely we have our institutions, and whether we trust their trust them or not, they are the companies that we place. Um, not our direct like decision making, you know, because crypto. The beauty of it is that you don't need to trust someone for your decisions. But in terms of like the day to day, um moving forward our industry, that day-to-day task, we do trust those companies and, you know, whether financial institutions for the crypto space. And by and large, they do, you know, they do a really good job. Yeah, um, they, they really do. So, some of them better than others. You know, I, I was a subject of a hack and, uh, you know, I have, I think, eight or nine different institutions uh, holding my money. And, you know, if you're a, a board member of a crypto company, you're going to be uh, targeted and We've been well trained and well messaged on it, and um, almost all of my stuff was was totally safe through you know massive two factor authentication and other uh, safety measures. But I I discovered and I don't want to use your podcast to to shame anybody, but some some of these are better than others. You know of some course. sort of flag suspicious stuff and you know actually place a phone call if you can believe it. Um, you know, uh, others flag it and say, we're not going to put this through for 48 hours. So you at least you have some time to respond. And some just go, oh, okay, I'll just, you know, this guy's never made a trade like this in his life, but suddenly he's, he's apparently wanting to do it and, and also has a Slovenian yeah. uh, email address. <laughs> you know? um, so, you know, if you look at like Coinbase is a good example. I, when I, whenever I go to sell, you know, a hundred uh, Ethereum tokens um, and I see the unbelievably high fee they charge me for it i i go oh my god why, why would i pay this this is supposed to be and i'm supposed to be free of all this but then i say well wait a minute they they are uh putting massive amounts of resources into security they they their their interface just looks fantastic it looks as good as you know schwab or fidelity or any of these that costs money to do and it's valuable to me obviously the reason I'm paying these transaction fees is because I value the other stuff they provide. I'm sophisticated enough that I could I could easily do these trades 
elsewhere on a you know place with lower fees or even w- with no fees at all, you know through wallets and stuff. But I value the convenience and the the sense that there's customer service there enough that I'm willing to pay the fees, and that, that's a trade off that I'm fine to make as long as I have an option. And that's what I hate about the banks is you don't have an option. Someone writes you a check, you know your option is either have a bank account that rips you off. Or go to a, a currency exchange where they really rip you off. So, so that's that's given my problem op- with the real banking system. Given an option, do you think most people would prefer to? Um, um, do you think most people would prefer to engage with uh, the crypto industry um, using institutions that they already know and understand, ones that offer the convenience, like you said, but maybe are not private and secure or offer the best fees? Um, do you, or do you think people would be willing to use the decentralized exchanges or the non-custodial wallets if the user interface, the user experience was better? Because really, that's what we want. Like, that's why we're here, right? We're here to have to not have to use these centralized institutions, whether they're interfacing with dollars or they're interfacing with crypto. Like Coinbase, I love them, but I feel like they're necessary evils up until a point. Yeah, it's it's such a good question. I, I've really wondered why the the bigger banks have not uh, bravely why you know they're they're so hungry for but new you sources know them. of revenue. So yeah, why no, tell I, I do. Us. I, I've I've even had a little tiny bit of influence. It's it's the regulatory risk, um, and it is substantial enough that they just don't feel that the the value proposition is there. I think the first couple times, if any of these uh, non non uh, you know, total crypto uh, native institutions goes public. That's, I think, going to be the watershed event, because what you're starting to see is some of the, the places have become really good hybrids. And I'm t- not, not talking about Coinbase, but like like Blockchain.com, for example, it's really, you know, they ah, that's taken a good this, that's a good one. That's a good like uh, comparison. They've yeah, taken they, what? they've taken this very stripped down purist aesthetic and slowly, little by little, added user interface and a little bit of customer service, offered more products, and they're starting to almost look like a Coinbase, not quite, but really keep their fees low and really have the the security top notch. Um, and I think as 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 one of these places figures out a way to go public. It's gonna, it's gonna be a deluge. It's uh, all of the banks. You know, you're, you're gonna have Wells Fargo will suddenly hire some, you know, some big expert from, uh, I don't know, from Bitstamp to, sure. you know, to run its crypto um, business, and and it's just going to be indistinguishable. I wonder the, if I could ever get a job like that. Not that I would ever want to, but maybe it's a good thing. Maybe my felony is a protection against for me ever being able to join. You know the the. The centralized institutions, or whatever. it keeps you pure, man. You don't, you don't need their crap. Yeah. You know, I, I have felt the sting of over scrutiny, unfair over scrutiny, just because of you know my friends are viewed as in powerful places. It's it's such a, a life ruiner that you know I I I know you well enough even through Facebook to just see how how wonderfully carefree you you've got your life to, and you know who needs the bullshit. You're one of, of the reasons I started this podcast. Um, <laughs> Well, I don't know if you remember when I when I, I had first gotten out of jail, I was like thinking what to do and I got a full time job and I hated it. I remember I called I hated yeah, no, it. I was crying. I didn't know if you wanted to mention that. No, I, it's OK. I, I, I won't mention the company name because I'm, I'm still friends with with the CEO. But I I mean, I was crying every day. I hated it. It was the worst. And everyone told me, but I need you know, I was just moving. And I needed I needed income. I needed to make something. Bitcoin wasn't in bull market yet. And you were telling me 
Um, you gave me some really good advice. You said, you know, if you hate it, don't do it. And if you have the ability to basically go, go tell him to go screw himself and you go do your own thing, then you should do that. And I, and I sat back and I said, you know, um, I remember sitting with my family and saying, I'm not going to ever have another point in my life where I'm forced to, to restart a whole career. You know, I'm always just, you're always just going to want to go from one comfort to another. And this is an uncomfortable situation. I'm going to quit and I'm going to figure out, you know, what I'm going to do next. And luckily I was able to, um, the, the industry embraced me. Um, and there was so much work to do. I had to turn things away, but uh, if I didn't have that phone call with you, I may be in a situation that I didn't want to be in. So thank you. Well, I appreciate you you giving me some uh, credit in that, but it really, it, it was it, it couldn't have been more uh, obvious. You were you were suffering, and it, you're you're just not cut out for a, a, a straight job. You Psychologically know? It's, it's just unemployable. Not who you are. You know what? What what made you such a, a powerful presence uh, the first time around? You know, is is what's <laughs> is what's making your your rebound even more the the more joy, uh, joyful for others to watch because they, they weren't able to crush that sort of impish boyish spirit uh, from you. They threw everything they got, literally the power, the full power of the most powerful federal government there is in the world, took their best shot and weren't able to kill you. And that's, that's sort of an inspiring lesson to anyone else who's, who's felt that uh, they're up against some, some, you know, immovable force. I will say this time, you got to use time on your side because the, the government and people in general, and you know, especially if they have more money than you or someone who's going to try to come after you, whether it's for whatever it is, um, it's okay to like take time, think, think things through and don't make um, rash, deci- rash deci- decisions. But um, speaking of someone who who makes rash decisions um, lately, well, for, been for a while for, for the better of our country, but you're really close to our president. Um, I was a skeptic very, when you and I started talking, um, uh, our president uh, was still being, it was still in, you know, up for discussion, whether he would, he would actually run. Uh, you're very close. You know, I, every time I go on face, Facebook, you're, you're in the white house for something or another. Do you, has, has, has the president or anyone close to the president, um, talk to you about crypto? I know that, you know, uh, president Trump has tweeted about Bitcoin once, um, you know, for better, or for worse, but, um, realistically, like internally, what is the administration? What is the government? What do regulators think about crypto? Like, tell us what's going on, uh, in, in, you know, behind closed doors in, in those rooms. I have never had a conversation with the president, uh, about crypto at all. Um, I, you know, I've interviewed him several times for, for stories I'm working on. And of course I've had many private conversations with him and I, I can't recall crypto ever coming up which is uh, unusual for me because I'm, I'm such an evangelist, you know, I try to bring it up. So it's just, it's just not something that I've ever sensed is on his radar at all. Um, of course, the, the different regulating uh, bodies, um, you know, it's front and center. A, a, a very good friend of mine uh, recently retired as the, the head of, um, as the chairman of the CFTC, for example, uh, Chris Giancarlo, he's, he's a good friend of mine for 20 years. Um, he's Bitcoin dad. Everyone loves him. Exactly. You know, so he's acquired this nickname of of Bitcoin dad. And, um, you know, I, 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 I don't, I try really hard never to use any, any sort of, uh, access that I have through, um, through friendships, um, to any kind of, uh, personal advantage. It's, it's just, it's, it's a toxic way to get yourself in trouble. 
And it's not a, it's not a way to be a good friend either, because you can get in trouble, people, you know, people around you. So, um, but you know, he, he acquired that nickname because of, of his genuine and sincere interest in the space. So what I can tell you is that, uh, it's, um, it's very much on the mind uh, of people at the CFTC, at the SEC, at the United States Treasury. And um, I'm, I'm quite frankly surprised that there hasn't been more action on this because the, you know, the Chinese have used our inaction um, to take a major advantage. And, and you know, the, the, this is why Bitcoin maximalists and Bitcoin purists um, kind of uh, surprise me because they're they're all about decentralization but when you've got the most totalitarian country on earth having well over uh, 50% of the mining ability you've really got a dangerous level of centralization um so i i i've been surprised that the united states regulators and, and frankly uh, you know western regulators because there's lots of democracies uh in the east that have been uh, way more forward thinking but but the American regulators and the European regulators have been so slow to say, you know, these are the, to, you know, you, you know, the phrase Hexer. I'm not sure if your your audience does, but these are these are the kosher tokens, the, the ones that have not, you know, uh, committed fraud, have not used illegal ICOs um, and, uh, you know, go in peace and develop great businesses and employ lots of Americans and play, pay lots of taxes. That's what they should be doing. Um, but they haven't. And I, I don't know why. You're right. And to and to further extend that, you have a lot of Bitcoin maximalists. And this is when where where I don't like this calling for like the arrest of 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 people that they simply don't you know agree with. And no matter what, I would never call for the arrest of anyone um, because, you know, that that it's physically and mentally uh, breaking. And it's just not something that I would, you know, even wish on my worst enemy. Um but I guess I understand both sides of the table, and I understand where um, some people prefer our industry or you know the space to go forward uh, one way or another. Uh, you're very smart. You understand. Um, I want to talk about Ripple for a second because I really don't talk about it on this show ever. Um, well, mostly because of, you know the the folks that were my friends that had founded Ripple left. When you and I were talking about Ripple uh, and other crypto, my friends were still there. Uh, some of them are still there, but these were so, some of you know you were. At, I remember you were talking to me about Stellar. You were asking me about Jed, um, and so. But I guess, do you understand the feedback or the negative responses or the negativity that comes from? Not just hardcore maximalists, but the the the, the middle of the road, the center of the aisle, uh, crypto folk. Do you understand why they come after Ripple so much? Do you understand why uh, XRP has become like the poster child for everything that people don't want crypto to be? And I'm not saying that that's true or not, but you see crypto Twitter. You see. I guess my question is like, why is that? And are any of the the negative feedback fair? Um, I, I, the way I understand it is is that the 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 anarchist wing of crypto, the the originalists who who saw it as a, a decentralized, um, uninstitutionalized utopia, would would naturally view uh, Ripple with its um, efforts to follow the rules and all this know your customer and anti money laundering rules as 
as the enemy. They're, they're the corporatists. And it, as in any revolution, it's the people who mostly agree with you who who uh, endure the most contempt rather sure. than your actual enemy. So you're going to see in this Democratic primary, um, you know, some of the, the, the most vicious shots are going to be taken against each other by the people who are closest to each other, because that's how you draw distinctions. So they're not... They're, you know, they're, it's of course they hate Trump, but they're going to really reserve their contempt and their personal animus for for fellow Democrats who who prefer a different candidate. That's just sort of human nature. So I get, I totally get that the originalists who, um, you know, invented the idea of of crypto and who who bought into, um, you know, who've read Satoshi's white paper and and bought uh, bitcoins like I did from you when when. I felt like giving you $200 was basically sadaka so that you could go to, you know, <laughs> go to Pennsylvania with a few shekels. Yeah. You know, um, uh, I think that, that when you look at ripple and you see, uh, people who have who've, uh, made a lot of money and try to follow the rules, you you feel like you're looking at, you know, IBM in the sixties. It's, it's the antithesis of the, of the, the culture you want. And I think that, that w- what was so interesting to me about the time I was talking to you about this was, was to me, uh, you know, Jed McCaleb kind of embodied that, that aesthetic. He was a surfer, good looking guy, brilliant, but so clearly not interested in like a nine to five corporate lifestyle. So that, that's why that dynamic was so interesting to me, uh, as a journalist. Um, and, uh, on the other hand, I, I think it's complete nonsense that 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 Ripple has, uh, in some cases, assumed this this almost um, Darth Vader like persona on some of uh, crypto Twitter, because first of all, Ripple is innovating like crazy. I mean, just their their science is really cutting edge, and they're they're doing great stuff. They're they're using these resources that they've they've put together um, for the for the good of the crypto community. I mean, to me, just you know, proof of Proof of stake is is just like as big an innovation in the crypto world as anything that's that's been invented. That that were Bitcoin really to have become a medium of exchange, it it would have like sort of ended the earth in an environmental catastrophe. So you know, having just just uh, Jed and others inventing proof of stake is it's like an incredibly important innovation in in. The, the world of crypto. So that alone should, you know, should, should diffuse some of that criticism. Right. But secondly, these are really good people trying really hard to, to bring this into the mainstream. And it's, to me, it's like when, when you meet someone and they don't like you too anymore because they, they liked them when they heard their first album and no one liked them. It's like, yeah, okay, I get it. You know, it's a different aesthetic when the band is playing in giant stadium versus CBGBs. Um, but you know, a real fan kind of loved them at CBGBs and continues to love them at Giant Stadium, even if the experience is different. So, so that's that's how I read that dynamic. So you know, BitPay has been a super long-term sponsor of Untold Stories, and actually one of my favorite companies in the space. I've been using them forever since 2014. I've been using my BitPay debit card, and I love it. I have actually had two of them at this point because I use it so much. Anyways, BitPay is launching their newest program. It's super cool. No one knows any details about it except for me and now except for you. It's still in stealth mode right now, but we've arranged that my listeners can get early access to their newest card program. So check it out. The first 100 people to sign up will get it literally free. All you have to do is go to bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. There's no catch. Go to bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. I've been using this product for years. This is the newest update 
everything about this product will beat the competitor on the market. Fees, limits, beautiful, sexy, little, sleek card. Everything about it is amazing. No one else has this opportunity except for you right now listening to this. BitPay.com forward slash Charlie. You guys are going to love it. It's so cool. I cannot wait to get my hands on one. Have I stunned you into silence with the, the brilliance of my prose here? Well, you, you did because you mentioned, you mentioned, you know, how proof of stake uh, is is so such an important invention. And I agree that uh, at least as a, as a social experiment and a, um, an invention into um, uh, not just economics, but also mathematics and, 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 and social and, and, and uh, sociology um, definitely proof of stake is super important. Whether I believe proof of stake uh, can work down the road on larger scale, m- maybe is a different conversation. Um, but I guess what you stunned about me was was your your comparison. I know uh, you're a big music guy. That's actually a big understatement. You um, founder of and member of of an amazing band, the Lilacs, for so many years, and you still play. Uh, so you definitely know music analogies. But I guess um, to to make the case that if I if I understand you correctly, if I if I love Bitcoin, if I'm if I'm a big lover of Bitcoin for many years and you know, something another crypto comes comes around that could potentially expand on or be different than Bitcoin, I should love that too. But I guess I don't I don't know if I agree because the way Ripple launched an XRP, it, it it's almost completely different to Bitcoin. And that's okay, but that should be what the message is. This is completely separate. This is a separate thing, um, and you don't have to love it. I guess is the is is what I would say. You don't have to. But you could still be a member of the of the crypto industry. Um, and a lot of people to go further than that. A lot of people really um, get not angry, but their response is that cryptocurrencies are are meant to be on a on a spectrum of decentralization. And and if they're not now, that's fine. Um, Bitcoin's not decentralized as much as it needs to be, but it's on that. Uh, path to decentralization, and so are others. But a lot of responses to 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 Ripple Labs, to XRP as a token, and to the whole uh, protocol, the you know the Ripple protocol is that um, the Ripple Ledger is that it's not trying to be decentralized. It's it's trying to be more of like a a bank chain. So is it fair to call it a cryptocurrency? And if not, then what is a cryptocurrency? Who who am I to say what a cryptocurrency is and isn't? Right? It, it's not for me to say. That's such a good point, Charlie. And there's, you know, there's so many flavors. You, you just go on to coin market cap, and it, during the, the the peak hype, which I would, I guess, I date to sort of December seventeen, January eighteen, around then, when it was truly idiotic. The the ones that were coming out, and they they had literally cribbed their white papers from each other, and and sometimes not even effectively uh, copy and pasted the name changes, um, or uh, searched and replaced the name changes. Um, I, I would say that you're right. These the, these tokens that that had no meaningful distinctions between each other were were straining the idea of what is a cryptocurrency. I, I will add that it's not it's not for me to say either. I I'm not willing to say that uh, you know Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency because uh, you know anyone can mine it. Whereas the the sort of the validators of of the XRP ledger um, is not as, as open. If the openness of the validation system is is the main component that you consider what makes a cryptocurrency, then then okay, then you know. Uh, don't, I see your don't. point now. It's um, a it's a good point. What, what I'd also add is that 
everyone I know who is, uh, you know, you've, you've made the point about how, how XRP is the, is the enemy or Ripple is the enemy. There's plenty of people in the XRP army, too. So everyone I know who is into XRP and who's a, a why a is there an XRP that, army? Like, what's the point of it? Because I, I think of what I, I said is is true that they're doing really good stuff and people who care about elements um, other than the the few that um, that the the maximalists uh, value, you know, see the see the value in what Ripple is doing. What I was going to say is that everyone I know who is an XRP guy, and I mean everyone. I, I was just talking about this with uh, Stefan Thomas. Um, owns Bitcoin, not only, you know, uh, believes in Bitcoin or got into it through Bitcoin, but owns it currently. Whereas there's a ton of Bitcoin holders who only own Bitcoin, would never consider um, any other uh, token. And uh, like to me, it's it's like a there's a religious fervor around it that, that I find uncomfortable, um, you know, even as a religious person. It's It's like, the difference between being a religious person who accepts that other people feel about their faith as strongly as you feel about yours and that's okay, um, versus the guy who's like, nope, you got to be my faith um, or else not only am I you know, going to threaten you with hell and damnation, but I, you know, I might do a crusade and try and kill you. So it's, uh, to me, it's okay to, to have a religion and kind of be interested in other religions as well. I never heard anyone make that point of the fact, and it's such a good point that I'm writing it down, that everyone who owns, and and I don't know if there's, if there's like a way to back this up statistically, but I, I'm going to say I don't care and I agree with it because the people that I talk to, I think it's true. People that I talk to, I talk to that are diehard Bitcoiners don't own Ripple, but people that own, that, that are diehard uh, Ripple folk own Bitcoin. But I think that's, that's the case for a lot of other cryptos in general. Um, Bitcoin is this almost maximalist coin now where um, if you own some, you may not want to own other things. But all the other coins and tokens, I have to th- I have to take this back and think about this. I have to unpack and digest, digest, digest this more and understand why. But I guess I want to ask you one more further question on this. In, in, you know, like... Is the XRP army a vocal minority, or do you think that this it's it's a larger part of the community to be almost that um, hostility where if they don't like us, then they don't understand us. What we're doing is so important that it doesn't matter what the means are as long as the ends are justified. Because that's what a lot of people think about XRP, whether or not it's true. You know, I, I am not a, a joiner, Charlie. I'm, I'm not on Twitter. Um, I don't, I don't, uh, you know, Billy Bragg's got a great line in his song, uh, Great Lead Forward. It says, if you've got a blacklist, I want to be on it. And I, I just, I don't know how to assess, you know, whether this mob is bigger and more dangerous than that mob, because um, I don't, I don't prefer to, to join any mob. It's stupid. Um, I, I think it is. I think it's, it's stupid. I, I think it's, there's, there's a, you know, James Madison wrote about uh, Socrates and the, the danger of mobs that um, even if every single member of the, the mob that eventually called for Socrates' death was himself a Socrates, it's still a mob. And I think that's true. I think that when you get group psychology where you have to sort of show off for the other members of the group that you are even more committed to the group than they are, it, it brings out the, the, the worst in, in human nature. So 
your question about is the XRP army real? Is it is it um, you know how powerful is it? I I don't know and and I don't care because I don't consider myself part of it. Um, I don't want to be part of any group and um, I I just you know I admire what the what the company is doing. They just keep keep innovating and doing their thing and uh, you know I'm proud to be part of it. You um. Speaking of of proud to be to be part of it, one of the things that we never spoke about, I had to, I figured out from um, from my research. But you were the founder of a magazine called Green Magazine back in uh, in 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 the nineties, and it was a pers- personal finance site. Uh, you got acquired by Bankrate, I think, in like ninety eight or ninety nine, um, and um, you were you were. You were on a list of 100 best websites for for 2001, which is a big list. <laughs> well, what um, <laughs> you know, along with like Netscape, yeah, and <laughs> pets.com and top 100 websites out of 105. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> what what was was financial literacy prevalent in pre 2001 that it is now? Did people talk about it? Did people care about it? Like, what were the conversations of the day when it came to people's money and, and those conversations? It, you know, I'm so glad you asked this because I'm so proud of my my that piece of my career, Green Magazine. But it, it's kind of gotten pushed uh, pushed under by all the the other higher profile things. That's what I've happens done. when you get into uh, politics? It, it does. You know, it, it eats everything. And I don't consider myself in politics, but, you know, I happen to be friends with people who have uh, been successful in politics. So I get sucked into it. And that's fine. I don't disavow. But, uh, you know, it, it, it shouldn't mean that everything else someone has done is, is meaningless. So Green Magazine was started for exactly this reason. You know, I'm, I'm a college dropout. Uh, I, I'm not a you know, guy with, uh, you know, MBAs and finance background or anything. But when I at my first job realized that just ordinary people, including people, mostly people my age, but even like older, had no idea what a mutual fund is or a 401k or, um, you know, an IRA and why that was uh, tax advantage and why it made sense to fund it. I was like, you know, I'm going to explain this to you people. And I started writing letters to my colleagues. I worked at United Feature Syndicate at that time, which was the distributor of Peanuts and Miss Manners and Bridge Collins and other things. So it was my first editing job. And I just started writing my colleagues all these letters explaining everything. And they were like, this is the first time anyone's been able to explain this to me. You ought to do this. You know, this should be your job. I was like, yeah, I probably should. So I started Green Magazine. It almost instantaneously, um, it was a hit overnight. It, it really was that, that sort of uh, overnight sensation people dream about. I, I, got onto, I got a regular gig on CNN where I was for, uh, every week for five years as a paid contributor. Um, and the magazine, as you as you uh, said, it, it got bought by a publicly traded company. That was you know sort of my first big score. You know, I grew up with with no money and and had no connections or anything. That was my first big uh, you know success. Um, and explaining money to people has been a passion since I've been you know 15, 16 years old. So this this uh, pivot into cryptocurrency has come very naturally to me. Because I really do believe with my whole heart, it's the future of money. Um, and I hope it's, it's not only I believe it, it's I hope it. Um, I believe in it, you know. Um, so evangelizing for it comes comes quite naturally to me. What does a world, um, what does a world look like that um, that is embracing and using crypto? What does that world look like? Does it look like a world where we have brand new uh, crypto institutions that are, you know, decentralized, but privacy, but with good convenience. Uh, these are not, you know, like centralized focal points that 
uh, governments can come after. Therefore, our you know financial system is super strong. Or are we looking at an in, at, at a at a crypto world where the in, the institutions of today? are operating in and working with uh, the crypto as we know it? Or is it a multi-plural, like, like a world in between? I think it's a multi, uh, is in between the, those poles that you just erected. And it's already happening. It's not some sort of, it could be this way. There, there are already, you know, the, the, the bourgeoisie in, in Venezuela and, uh, you know, has had to buy Bitcoins as, as the only place to safely store your value, right? Because if you have dollars, someone's going to some bandits going to come and chop your head off and take your dollars. If you if you have uh, local currency, you're it's valueless. You need the proverbial wheelbarrows of it to buy a loaf of bread. Um, so it, it, Bitcoin today is serving a need. Same in you know in places like Russia and China, where um, the governments are so worried about currency leaving the country that they're putting major limits, including you know arrest and prosecution. If you do the traditional things like buying artwork or buying expensive Manhattan real estate, and as those places like you know Manhattan wants to put a, a pedicure tax on people, which is just another way of stealing money, um, you know Bitcoin becomes a better and better option. And other currencies such as XRP, um, it's in use right now. And in the Mexico to the United States corridor, which is a, a massive corridor where, where uh, Mexican laborers come to our country, do a ton of work. Get paid and want to send money home, and the traditional, you know, if they do, they send a hundred dollars through Western Union, it could cost thirty nine bucks. That's that's crazy. So right now, through uh, MoneyGram, ten um, percent of the the Mexican to American transactions are already done on XRP, where it's virtually free, it's virtually instantaneous, and the the throughput capacity is is approaching Visa. So. Um, it's there's this, this not dream scenarios anymore where you, where you can say I can envision where it could go this way or that way. It's starting to be a situation where where you're starting to see it. And when 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 MoneyGram says, well, our cost to transfer this money via XRP is only a fraction of what it was, then you know then Western Union and others are going to get on board, and other corridors are going to open, Philippines to Japan and etc. Could the reason that a lot of the anti Ripple folk get angry be because of what you just said because that like you like you said um you're living the dream it's it, you're doing it's not just some like hey this is what could be down the road it's hey this is actually what's happening now and the response from the super heavy bitcoin maximalist will be yeah but it's not being done via a cryptocurrency so it's not real um, and my response would, would be, okay, so let me ask you another question. Would you rather people do remittance using Ripple, so where it's cheap, or would you rather people use remittance using Western Union and pay 40 bucks? And the response will be, to be honest, Ken, the response of a lot of people, unfortunately, is I'd rather people use remittance and pay the $40 than use Ripple because they're getting fucking scammed. That's what the response yeah. is. It's a stupid right. response. No, exactly. It's a, it, to me, that's a response of someone who's not a Mexican laborer sending <laughs> you know, 39% of their money to, to a big corporation. So I, if you want to know why people sometimes get angry at Ripple or about XRP, you should have someone on your program who, who's angry at XRP. I, I don't want to speak for them. No, I don't um, really you know, like to have angry people on the show in general. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really uh, – I'm really – 
bullish on this company because I think companies that save people lots of money with new disruptive solutions do well. But I'm also uh, in my heart really committed to what they're doing because I have a heart for these people. You know, I'm I'm uh, I'm the son of an immigrant, a, a refugee, as a matter of fact, and um, I have a heart for these people who who um, are trying to do remittances and, and look after people uh, um, who've been you know who are in countries far away. Um, so this is this is a meaningful project to me, not just because I think it's going to make a lot of people a ton of money, uh, which I do. I, I think it's solving a real problem in the world. And the pushback is evidence to me of, of just how afraid the institutions are that these problems will get solved because they're fighting uh, so hard on the regulatory front to protect their, their turf. You're, um, Oh, that's interesting. That's an interesting point there. They are fighting really hard to protect their turf, but um, you're a, you're the founder of Modern Consensus. Interestingly enough, I started reading Modern Consensus before I knew that you were the founder of it. Um, it's funny how that worked out. I just started seeing <laughs> seeing the content and the articles being written about, you know, online and everything. Um, do you think it's important for for you know the owners of of crypto media or media in general to disclose um, things that they own or their um, their positions or whatever? Absolutely, to, yeah. absolutely. Every time we even mention. Uh, ripple. Um, there's a you know a note at the bottom. Even if I you know I, I never have anything to do with the stories, but even if it's uh, you know all but the most in passing references, we will mention uh, at the bottom. Uh, Modern Consensus founder Ken Kirsten is uh, serves on the board. So you do that, ripple. but most oh, other absolutely. crypto no, absolutely. media doesn't do that. In fact, I don't know anyone else that does. And they should. I think it's critically important. They all should. And one of the things I was hoping you'd ask me about. So thank you for. Uh, transitioning to this is I've been shocked by how little and how bad the the journalism is around our space. Yeah, it's really and bad. There, there've been really noble attempts, and uh, you know I, I was a huge uh, Rizzo fan and uh, of what he was trying to do at at uh, uh, CoinDesk, and um, you know, and even even his sort of uh, unceremonious sacking is kind of proof of what I'm talking about that. That the second you get too close to doing actual journalism, um, meaning not carrying water for for the financial companies that, that sort of own your publication, um, you know you're liable to find yourself uh, out on the street. It's good so, you brought this up. Um, yeah. We had Pete Rizzo on the show. I was a big fan of CoinDesk for many many years, um, and CoinDesk is pivoting away from what they uh, were meant. You know what they started doing when to be crypto media now they're more of like a research and development and and uh and events and events um pete had left when um they had moved into the dcgo offices um but i'm actually releasing an episode with mike dudas from the block um and i feel like the block is kind of like the opposite end of coindesk i'm a fan of the block at times but um my only my only feedback to the block and and I and I did give this feedback to Mike is I don't appreciate I don't think that crypto media needs to be uh, hostile and trolly especially on Twitter and to fuel that uh, in order to get clicks I think the, your clicks and your and your viewership speaks for itself a lot of people like to read the block and they appreciate the journalism there um, and he actually apologized for that he Mike said he came back and he said yeah um, I agree that at times and a lot of times we've you know we went too far we're still like learning as we go but I think it's getting better I think I think overall um, crypto media is getting better but I think that 
it's also very difficult. It's also a very difficult thing to do. Like, how do you, how do it's you? It's incredibly difficult and incredibly expensive. It's funny that you're having you Mike money? on because if, if you're, if you're looking for somebody who's really going to take some shots and wants to tell you why people hate uh, XRP and Ripple, uh, Mike would be a good place to start because he's, he's a, a funny and articulate critic, but yes, uh, uh, very vinegary at times. And I, I think overly so uh, at times, but um, he's a smart guy and he's doing good stuff with the block. But you're 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 right. It's really hard to make money in this space. Um, you you probably remember Breaker Mag started by another crypto firm, and that, that, this is a central problem. It's these places are, are generally started not by journalists but by uh, crypto firms. So they're you know they, they sort of launch with an over unovercomable conflict of interest. But Breaker launched with unbelievably beautiful design, really great writers and real writers from you know Rolling Stone and and brand name journalism publications. They were paying massive salaries. I was terrified because we were bidding for the same freelance writers as, as they were with a much smaller budget. And uh, a friend of mine who, who went there told me when I said, how, how does this work? What your economics don't, don't make sense to me. He goes, we've got two years of capital. Yeah, seven months later, they, they ceased to exist. And it's a shame everybody. because I liked yeah. I liked Breaker. I liked the concept of Breaker of profiling people in, in our industry. But yeah. um, so that goes that goes further to the next question. Can we build products? Is our industry you you've been a part of multiple new industries that, you know, kind of like um, that were ahead of their time. You were part of those industries and saw them grow. Are we, you think our industry, and this is an honest question because I don't know the answer, are we big enough now, you know, almost 10 years on, Ken, are we big enough now uh, to build companies to, to support ourselves? Like, can, can our, have your, if, can modern, can, can modern consensus be profitable or even solvent only accepting, you know, um, advertisers or only operating and, and earning income from within the crypto ecosystem and not taking any dollars from outside? The answer is yes, but only if you c control costs like a bastard. And that's why I would put the, the put forth myself, having been uh, schooled in, in the incredibly financially difficult uh, world of, of, for example, the New York Observer, where you know, we're constantly um, scrambling to, to pay people. I, I think that's the only possible way this works. If, if you take this approach that people like Breaker and even Coindesk have, um, where there's a little bit of, uh, you know, Condé Nast in the 90s or Time Inc. in the 90s. You know, you expect a, a dessert cart to roll around at five o'clock with a, a line of town cars waiting <laughs> outside to take everyone home. It's just not going to work. So I, I am, uh, I feel sick all day long when, when I have to tell our editors, look, we, we pay, you know, 75, 100 bucks a story. And, and I know that sucks. I know that's, that's uh, difficult, but that's just a reality. I'm trying to build a sustainable business here, not trying to, to, you know, have something that's a loss leader so I can promote some token that, that you know, my company owns, you know, so I, I believe that modern consensus, which by the way, has been profitable um, since uh, about six months after it launched is, is sustainable, but only because we really are uh, brutal on the cost side. Um, so I'm committed to doing real journalism, conflict free journalism where, uh, you know, the, the company is not owned by some financial service companies or carrying water for it or trying to, you know, sell you some research product. Um, but, uh, I don't, I don't see that becoming like, you know, huge business. Um, I see it, uh, being, you know, where, where we are sort of, you know, a couple of full-time, uh, real journalists, a lot of freelancers and trying our best to, 
to cover a very complex and fast changing space with limited resources. And and what's so what's the next step for you? What's the next step for Modern Consensus? Well, Modern Consensus is one of six sites that my company owns. My company, Sea of Reads Media, um, publishes. In fact, it's the only one that's not Globe branded. So our sites are, you know, Rock and Roll Globe, uh, Book and Film Globe, California Globe. So we have a seventh that'll be launching in a few weeks, uh, and hopefully an eighth in the summer. Um, so you know, we're growing, but but uh, like like I just told you with Modern Consensus, we're trying to do it really carefully and not not get out in front of our skis. Um, and for me personally, that's, that's, that's what I'm into. I, I, I am determined to find a third way for journalism where it's not homemade, you know, sort of the, the blog mentality where there was no real journalism, it was just someone's opinion, but it's also not giant institutions that end up collapsing, um, under the weight of their expenses. I'm watching, you know, I'm, I'm born and raised in Chicago and I'm watching the Chicago Tribune, one of the most important journalism institutions in this country, essentially fall apart right before my eyes right now. It's, it's incredibly painful um, to, to view uh, on top of all the other newspapers that have, you know, McClatchy um, has filed for bankruptcy, et cetera, et cetera. That's not a new story. So I'm, I'm determined to, prov- to prove to the world that professional real journalism can work um, if you run it like a business, not like a, a you know, idealized college product uh, project. Um, but but that means being tough on on costs, and sometimes that's that doesn't win you tons of friends. You wrote um, you wrote Rudy Giuliani's autobiography. You wrote. The I think you mean uh, number one best selling autobiography. But number yes, I did. one best selling autobiography. You wrote the personal memoir for uh, John Crowley. Um, my question to you is: Will you write my book with me? Because I think you would be an epic writer with me for for my book. Charlie, I'm so we do it. honored that you would think of me. You've had such a fascinating life story. I happen to think you're a pretty fun writer yourself. So I don't, I don't think, think I'm a good me. one, though. Uh, I, I'm not even sure with all of your Bitcoin riches you can afford me because my my, <laughs> my number has my number has is is uh, rocketing well into the four figures at this point. Um, Amazing. No, seriously, Charlie. I, I I I would be honored to work with you on any project. I've I've you know hounded you to get you to to write for Modern Consensus, as as you know. And I'm, I'm trying. I'm mentioning that publicly so your your listeners will will rise up and demand that you do so and share your insights on our our site. Um, but I I you know I hope you and I are going to be friends for life, and I'm I'm happy to work with you on whatever you're doing. I don't hope because I know we will be. So um, and we definitely have remained over the past six years. Um, the last question before we. We finish up and we can keep, you know, we can go for a very long time. Um, but I, and I usually don't, you know, veer off topic, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the upcoming, um, you know, election cycle as it pertains to crypto. I know that crypto is definitely not on the forefront of any um, candidate's agenda, but I guess I'm a little bit disheartened. And I always like to talk to you because uh, sometimes you can help me uh, see the see the the trees through the forest. But I feel like we're coming to a point where um, Americans are going to have to choose between, um, I guess, what's the word I'm looking for? I feel like these these elections have become growing up elections were always like seen by my parents as like holy and it's like we take them seriously we investigate the facts we look at the candidates we we understand what's going on and i feel like that's changed i feel like now 
Um, all you do is have people attacking each other, especially on the Democratic side. All they do is attack each other. The Republican side, it's just it's just been crazy. It's just been this like circus. Um, should I be disheartened? You know, are are these just vocal minorities? Um, and then and then in terms of in terms of like the world of of crypto, um, what should we be looking at in terms of our candidates? Are there any type of um, you know voters who care about voting and are going to the polls for their state and federal elections? What should they look at as it pertains to crypto uh, for their candidates when when not just presidential elections, but also like state and local elections? All right. Let, let me take that in, in two parts. A very thoughtful question. The, f- the first part is you must not be disheartened by this political season. I'm, I'm going I'm to tell you why this is actually a wonderful time for uh, democracy. Um, and that's that like uh, this, this notion has taken hold that the Democratic primary is quote, a mess and that, you know, someone should come in and assert authority and decide who the candidate should be. So, so they stop the fighting. I have the exact opposite view. I, I think that, that it, it's, it's a wonderful, uh, lovely thing to see these candidates, um, making the case. And I think they've largely done it respectfully. There's been actually very little negative money as percentage, uh, of television spending, um, attacking each other. These debates have been incredibly telling. There have been 11 debates now. That's, that's a lot of, a lot to ask, uh, an electorate, um, to make a decision. They've been substantive. And, uh, the way I'd characterize it, it's, it's been messy, but it's not a mess. You know, d- democracy should be messy. By messy, I mean people should be presenting tough, uh, tough contrasts. And the history of our country, for anyone, you know, who's any kind of historian or has even seen, you know, the musical Hamilton, it's it's not pretty. There's there's smart people are going to have widely divergent points of view. They're going to make their case, and uh, the American people are going to decide which they're on the Democratic side. They're doing right now. So the second part of your question regarding crypto, I I I believe this is the last presidential election in history. 2020 will be the last presidential election in history where crypto will not be an issue, and that's that's solely because. You know, had had Andrew Yang been the Democratic nominee or something, it might have snuck in there somehow or Pete Buttigieg. But it's going to be, uh, you know, a late 70s uh, white guy on the Republican side against a late 70s white guy on the Democratic side. Um, And that's that's just the the math of it um, right now. um, you know, with apologies to Elizabeth Warren, who's been a terrific candidate and uh, probably deserved a better look than she's gotten. Um, she's not going to be the nominee. So um, this is the last the last election that's going to feature those dynamics. So I don't think crypto is going to get much of a hearing um, right now. Um, but I think that's the last time it ever won't get a, a hearing. And I'm really looking forward to future elections when uh, debating crypto policy will, will be just like debating social security policy and energy policy and education policy and all the rest. And I think that's happening, but not this time. That's a very fair statement to make because a lot of people will say that it, it is a top issue now and it should be a top issue now, but you're saying, no, it will be on the next one and we still have a lot to grow. So I like that. You're giving me now four years to really make sure that this industry grows enough and Bitcoin grows enough and crypto grows that in four years from now, not only is it a top issue, but it is the most important issue in the whole crypto industry. Uh, Ken, 
Thank you so much for coming on the show today. How can um, our listeners follow you, follow your writings, but also follow the writings and the content of your, what did you say, 15 other websites, seven? No, six. six, six, six <laughs> just, I'm teasing you. Um, it's growing, but uh, I, nobody can really follow me. I don't make myself super available publicly. Um, if you're my friend, you can see pictures of my five kids on Facebook. But other than that, um, I, I encourage you to go to all of the, the Globe uh, websites, uh, New Jersey Globe, California Globe, Rock and Roll Globe, Fine Art Globe, Book and Film Globe uh, to see see the good stuff we're doing. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Ken. Thanks for having me, Charlie. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Untold Stories are released every Tuesday and Thursday at 7 a.m. EST on untoldstories.com, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Untold Stories is produced by Jason Yanowitz, Michael E. Polito, Reed Hannaford, and Riley Silbert of Blockworks Group. Our account executives are Gina DeFelice and Julie Muroff. Our content is written by Kathy Zolo, Ronnie Tishner, and Scott Offer. Special thanks to Wayne Dallaire from Jump Dog Audio Productions. And of course, I'm your host, Charlie Shrem. You can follow me on Twitter, at Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation Send me some messages, feedback, or anything you want to say. And remember, please give some love to my sponsors, and I'll see you next week. Remember, strength in numbers and information is power. 